James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James wrote those words to encourage his hearers with that truth, with the truth that God would never tempt anyone with evil. He would not send difficulty or temptation into our lives in order to coax us to sin. God only gives good and perfect gifts. He is the Father of lights. There is no variation or shadow due to change in him. He only gives good and perfect gifts. He is the one who brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave us the new birth, the birth from above, by the word of truth, by the gospel. He did that so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Of all his created things, he designed for the believers, the church, to be a kind of first fruits, the first of the harvest of redemption of all his created things. All things will be made new, but he set apart the church for himself to receive the new birth first. Therefore, again, we can be assured that God will only give us good and perfect gifts. Do you believe that? That's really the question for every believer when we're confronted with the truth of the word of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God only gives good and perfect gifts? Do you believe that he is sovereign, meaning he is in control of all things? He's all-powerful. He's able to exert his will. Pardon me. Overall, such that he can and does only give good and perfect gifts. Well, as we continue to approach our celebration of Christ's first advent, we begin to explore the reality that Jesus is God's gift to us. He was sent from above as the preeminent of God's good and perfect gifts. Last week, we looked at John's prologue in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where Jesus is described as the Word of God. He is the Word of God, the final Word. There is no greater, no more complete Word or revelation of the Father's character than Jesus himself. If you want to know what God is like, what God looks like, look to Jesus. He is the Word of God made flesh. And each Christmas season is a season to remember that God still speaks to his people. This morning we will look at another passage in John's gospel. This one is found in John chapter 6. There Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. This is one of the famous I am statements in the gospel of John. These seven I am statements are indicative of Jesus' self-understanding. This is who he knew himself to be. He was sent into the world by the Father for a purpose, both to disclose the person of the Father and to bring people to the Father by means of the new birth. Whereas we understand bread to be a staple, a basic necessity to sustain physical life, Jesus is here portrayed as the true bread from heaven, sent down from above to give and to sustain spiritual life for those who receive him. Let's take a look now at John chapter 6. I'm going to start reading from verse 1, and we'll read all the way through, actually, verse 59 together. It's kind of a lengthy section, but I think the context will help us to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. So let's take a look at the passage together, and then we'll go through. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the sign that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that come down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he, is, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Father, we thank you for this day once again, and we thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which indeed sanctifies us. As we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what's happening in this passage? A lot of things, really. In the first 15 verses, the people came to Jesus after seeing some other healing miracles. And the text says that he fed some nearly 5,000 people. The number 5,000 actually referred to the men in the group. And so if you think about that, and each of those men probably had a family, and so there's at least 10,000 people, and if they had children, there would have been more than that. So 10 to 15,000 people were all fed with five barley loaves and a few small fish. The disciples go across the sea to Capernaum, and Jesus, because they've already gone ahead, he just decides to take a stroll to go over there with them. So he walks across the water, and he joins them in the boat, and then they make it to the other side. A couple of verses later, the crowds realize that Jesus is no longer on that same side of the road, and so they cross over to the sea to try to look for him. And that brings us to our section at about verse 25. The crowds find Jesus, who is likely teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. It's unlikely that all of them would have been able to fit in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so he's probably in some outer court area teaching them talking with them but he decides to take this time to use the miracle that he just worked as an object lesson to teach them about the true bread that comes down from heaven many of the people commented on the other side of the sea this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world we talked about the idea of the prophet who was to come last week And that's a reference to Moses' words back in Deuteronomy when he stated that God would raise up for them a prophet from among the people who would be like Moses. He would speak the word of God to them and they should listen to and follow him. So if he was the prophet, then they should listen to and follow him. The question is, did they truly believe that he was the prophet? Well, again, Jesus takes this opportunity to use the sign that he just worked as an object lesson to teach the people about true bread. That's what we see in this section. There are three main movements in this section as Jesus is teaching about the true bread from heaven, the bread of life. He says that the bread of life is non-perishable. That's in the first couple of verses, 25 through 27 really the first part of 27. He says also the bread of life is a person. It's in the last part of verse 27 through verse 35. And then he says the bread of life is the provision of God for his people. And that's the rest of the section, 36 through 59. And as we go through, 
and you listen to Jesus' teaching as he's teaching on the bread of life, you see him building up to this final point that the bread of life is the provision of God for his people. There is no other. Well, again, the first thing we learn about the bread of life is found in verses 25 through 27. The bread of life is non-perishable. Let's look at those verses again. He says there, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. And we'll stop there. The people were seeking Jesus again after he miraculously provided them with enough food to feed upwards of 10 to 15,000 people or more with just those five small loaves of bread and a few fish. They sought for him and they finally found him on the other side of the sea and they asked inquisitively, Rabbi, how did you get here? It's an honest question, sort of. They were ready to pronounce him as the prophet and to make him king by force. They had no idea how he got to the other side and when. So it was, again, sort of an honest question. How did you get here? Now, in the Gospel of John, we've already seen evidence of Jesus's ability to know the hearts and minds of men. In the narrative of Nicodemus, we see Jesus answering the question that Nicodemus did not verbally speak in John chapter three. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you are from God. Jesus' answer to him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And we're thinking immediately, how in the world did you get there? Well, a few verses earlier at the end of chapter two, John stated plainly that Jesus knows within the heart of all men. Jesus knew what was really on Nicodemus's heart. And so he just gets right to the point and addresses the issue that he's coming to him about. Jesus knew what was on the hearts of the people here in our passage. He knew what they needed to hear. So in our text, he gets right to the point. He addresses the heart issue. It is an interesting question how he got there. The answer being that, again, Jesus performed another miracle that day, walking across water. But he knows that the people really don't care how he got there. They have something else on their mind. And even if they did care how he got there, that's not really the most important thing. And while Jesus is not walking on earth today, the same is often true for us. I know that many times people will come and they'll present a serious matter. Something that they perhaps need counsel on or should be seeking counsel on, but they already kind of have their minds made up. And so it's really difficult to, to try to counsel because they already have certain questions and thoughts and they formulated certain opinions in their minds. And so they kind of move ahead with that. And likewise, often when we come before God's word on Sunday morning and there's a text of scripture being presented, when we sit before God's word, we may have certain questions and thoughts on our minds, certain things that we want to hear. And you'll hear people say all the time, they'll comment on whether or not they were fed at church on Sunday or whether or not the sermon was good. And it's usually based on whether or not they heard certain key words or phrases that they were really looking for, right? Whether or not their specific need was addressed for the week. Often we'll see visitors come in the same way. They'll come looking to hear for certain things in the church service. And when they don't hear those certain things in the church service, they, they leave out and never come back. The reality is that the Lord knows what we need to hear. He's not here for us, right? He's not here to meet our felt needs. We're here for him. And so whenever we come before him, before his word, before his truth, that ought to be our desire, our prayer ought to be, as Solomon prayed, for a listening heart. Our, sol- our prayer ought to be, as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your word. Whatever the word of God says, it does not speak in vain. If what you are hearing is true to the text of scripture, to the word of God, then it is for you. 
God is speaking to you. Well, again, Jesus, knowing what is on their hearts, knowing what they needed to hear, wasted no time getting to the point. In John six twenty six, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. You seek me not because you saw signs. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, signs refer to miracles that would have attested that a man was from God. Miracles were always a confirmation of the fact that God was at work. And of course, the miracle reference here is the miraculous feeding and even the healing that he did before that. They saw the signs, but they didn't really see the sign, right? One author said it this way. They didn't see what the sign signified. It's like when you're driving down the road and you're looking for an exit and you see all these signs and all these billboards around, but you're not really reading them until you miss your exit. And uh, you end up having to turn around. They saw the sign. The sign was there. It was a bright green sign with white letters on it, clear as day, but they completely missed the point. As they were stuffing their mouths, they even commented this was the prophet who was to come. But they didn't really understand that. They didn't really respond in faith. He says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They didn't understand the significance of the sign performed, and they were not willing to listen to him as the prophet who was to come. But rather, because their bellies were full, they came looking for more. One of the most stinging indictments on the world, in my view, is found in Philippians 3.19. Paul says there that those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ are those whose God is their appetite. What their flesh desires is their God. He says it slightly differently in Ephesians 2, 3, when he says that we, before coming to Christ, all of us were indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Their God is their appetite. They indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What was a popular soft drink slogan back in the day Obey your thirst has become the self-help mantra, even the supreme virtue of our day. Obey your thirst. Whatever you desire the most, that is the most important thing. That is what you should pursue. Perhaps it is food, water, or clothing. You know, people organize their whole lives around eating. The progression of the day is often signified by those three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we dare not miss We even come up with words to describe our insatiable desire for food. And the result of that, if we are denied, we say we are hangry. Everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows to stay out of that person's way if they're hangry. That has become the socially acceptable thing to do. We work long hours to have enough in our accounts, not merely for our basic needs of food, water, and clothing, but for the best Food, water, and clothing. We cannot imagine a meal of peanut butter and jelly in our home, or sun butter, for those of you who are allergic. We can't imagine that as a simple meal. That would be unheard of. We would feel like failures in life. Ramen noodles, which I think that college students lived off of for years, many a college student. We won't eat it today unless it's cooked in a fancy restaurant. We're charged 10 times the amount that it costs to make it. And it's given a fancy name and a lot of water and it's made up real pretty. We simply cannot imagine life without the creature comforts of the best kinds of foods. Here in America, we have no idea how good we really have it. Restaurants around us throw out perfectly good food, tons and tons of food week in and week out. Food enough to feed probably whole communities in some places in the world. And we don't bat our collective eye about it. Our clothing, only the best styles will do. Name brand styles, current fashionable styles, even if for women those styles involve seeing more skin than a dermatologist. Or else revealing the shape of our bodies in such a way that nothing is left to the imagination. 
Or for men, again, name brand, the most expensive shoes, the best kind of watch. All those creature comforts that we enjoy. Yes, food, water, and clothing are important, but they're not the most important. Perhaps that's not your struggle. Maybe it's some other appetite for you. Maybe it's the desire to be affirmed by others. We've talked about this before. We're so desperate to be affirmed by others. We document our lives in social media and frequently check to see if someone has liked our post or commented on our post or sympathized with our complaint. Around the water cooler, at work, at our desk at school, out in our yard with our neighbor, we look for people who will like us, affirm us, agree with us, stroke our egos. The whole identity movement today is based on the desire to have someone affirm you for who you think you are. Coupled with the moral revolution that has produced a generation of people in our society who don't know the difference between male and female. They don't know how significant that difference is in the very basic biological fact that you can't have a society, a family, nor an individual without a clearly defined male and a clearly defined female. I'm not talking about the idea of male and female as if it's fluid. I mean, there's no chance for procreation, even in a test tube, unless you have a male and a female. It's illogical. But there's so much confusion today and people have their feelings so wrapped up in their desire to be affirmed about what they think about themselves. That all logic, all sanity has completely left the building. We could talk about the need for more stuff, our appetites for stuff, the need for more entertainment, the need for bigger, better, fancier, the need to compare ourselves to others instead of being content with who we are. What is it for you? What is it in your heart that you can say, I can't live without? If I lost such and such, life would be over. What is it that you're currently pursuing in life? What are you clinging to? What are you working for? My wife and I were recently talking about an alarm that I had set on my phone. And in jest, I was talking about potentially turning off the, the alarm before it went off, musing about whether or not I was robbing that poor alarm of its purpose by turning it off early. I mean, that's what alarms do, right? They, they go off, they alarm you, and if you turn it off early, you're robbing it of its purpose. I mean, come on. I promise I was just kidding. But without missing a beat, she said very simply, the alarm is there to serve you, not the other way around. But I think that's the perspective that we miss when it comes to our stuff and our desires, right? The alarm is there to serve you, not the other way around. Our stuff and even the things that we desire and the things that we enjoy are not there. They're there to serve us and to help to meet our needs. We're not there to serve them. We have so many needs and often have an outsized perspective on how much we truly need those things. They become more important to us than anything else. And we end up serving them instead of using them to serve us. So many things, so many things that are not evil in and of themselves, but which can become evil unto us if we look at them with the wrong perspective. Food, water, and clothing are not evil, but they become evil if we lust after them and covet them and are not content with what we have. Having a community where others care for you and you care for others is certainly not evil. But having an outsized opinion on the other's perception of you can become evil if you live for their opinion and for their good pleasure rather than for God's. Certainly knowing who you are, wanting to know who you are is not evil, but it can become evil if you seek to know who you are apart from the perspective of your creator. And our material possessions can be a tool for good, but can also be a source of of evil if we live our lives for those things. The people whom Jesus had just fed a meal of bread and fish were so concerned and consumed with filling their bellies with more bread and fish that they completely missed the reality of this miraculous work that Jesus had just done. They were looking at the benefit instead of the benefactor, right? They were looking at the blessing instead of the one who blessed. 
So again, Jesus says in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for this, work for that. Now, this is clearly not intended as an absolute statement. Jesus is not saying quit your day job and never work to meet the basic needs of your family. He's clearly not saying that. Paul, the apostle will say later in his letter to the Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, what? He shouldn't eat. We should be working to provide for the basic needs of our families and others. What Jesus is doing in our text is drawing a comparison between two different kinds of foods and the degree to which we work for, build our life around, or make our focus around those things. He's saying by comparison, this food is better than that kind of food. If you would make anything your sole focus in life, the thing that you work hardest for, the thing you are most passionate about, the thing that you seek above all other things, it should be this kind of food and not that kind of food. Do not work for perishable food, but for what is imperishable, for food that endures to eternal life. Perishable things give out. They run out. They disappoint. You will not ultimately be satisfied by those things because they will come to an end. But there is a food that is not perishable. There is a food that will not give out. There is a food that will not run out. It will not disappoint. This food will lead to eternal life. This is a qualitatively better kind of food. This eternal life food gives eternal life. The other foods that you may consume, the other appetites that you may have satisfy in this life and they are temporary. They can only provide for life that is temporary. The other food yields eternal life. The question that Jesus is beckoning for them to answer in all of your working in all of your striving, in what you are working and striving for now, have you considered eternity? In Luke 12, Jesus speaks of a rich fool who labored long and whose land was very productive. Now, this rich fool never inquires why it was so productive. He simply assumed that it was his own strength and ingenuity that did it. And that he simply needed to build larger and bigger barns to store all of his goods. And he further reasoned to his own soul that he could now sit back, eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy all of his own provisions. But God said to him at the end, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may work hard. You may gather and store all kinds of things for yourself. You may even at times be able to enjoy all of these external things. But you can't keep yourself alive. And eternity is coming. So have you considered the end? Have you considered what happens next? Have you considered what you will say when you stand before your God, your creator, your maker? Have you lived a life that is acceptable to him? Is that even possible? Have you thought about those things? Again, last week we looked at John 1, 1 through 18. There John said that the word of God made flesh has come to give new birth to all who believe in him. Our first birth into this world is not enough to qualify us for the next. In fact, he says in verse 13 that our first birth is not good enough. He says it is not for those who are born of blood, meaning born of natural means by a father and mother. We are all born of Adam, who is a sinner. We inherited his sinful nature. Just as Adam was kicked out of the garden, we have all been rejected by God for the sinful nature that re- resides in us. Furthermore, John says that the new life, the new birth, you will not qualify for heaven by the will of the flesh meaning the exertion of man, human efforts, good works. These things won't qualify you. All of our deeds are as filthy garments. Paul says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We all deserve that. It's not the will of the flesh or our desire that will cut it. And John says it's not by the will of man, not by human intuition or strength of desire. Men do not control their own fate. Without the life of God, we all indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We are all children deserving of wrath. In other words, again, apart from God's intervention, we will have no new life. We will not make it. We will experience spiritual death. 
we must be born again. And this new life is something that only God gives. Well, Jesus says back in our text, again, if you're going to labor for anything, if you're going to work hard for anything, if you're going to pursue anything, it should be that which leads to eternal life. Not just what sustains your physical life here. That leads us to the next point. At the end of verse 27 through 35, we see that the bread of life is a person. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You must work hard for the eternal life giving kind of food. That food doesn't come through ordinary means. That food comes through one whom God has selected. Again, verse 27, don't work for the food which perishes, work for the food that endures your eternal life. The son of man will give you this food. The father has set his seal on him. The son of man is the one who gives the eternal life food. You don't work for it in the same way that you work for temporary life giving food. The son of man gives you this kind of food. If they had spiritual ears to hear what Jesus was saying, that would have been the best news that they could possibly have ever heard. What? I don't have to work for this new food. Someone's just going to give me this new food. That's what Jesus just said. The son of man will give it to you. But again, they have selective hearing and selective thinking, and they had certain things in their minds that they wanted, and they weren't willing to hear the word of God. They were unable to hear it for those reasons. He refers to himself as the son of man in the old Testament, particularly in Daniel seven, the son of man is pictured as the one to whom the ancient of days gives the kingdom. The ancient of days is a reference to God himself. There in Daniel seven, the text says that the ancient of days gives to the son of man, quote, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man language should have come to mind when Jesus evoked this term with reference to himself. The one, the one to whom God, the ancient of days has given all things is the one who can give you the bread that does not perish, but that leads for eternal life. Work for that bread, pursue that bread. Seek out the son of man and ask him for that bread. He is the one on whom God has set his seal. Again, the idea of God setting a seal upon him is God authenticating his ministry and his work. And he clearly did that already. They saw the miracles. They saw the healing. They experienced the feeding of 10,000 plus people. Nobody does that but God. So they should have understood. They should have got it. But they couldn't get it. They weren't there. In verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Their interest is piqued they still don't quite get it. And this has really been the pattern of humanity since the fall, right? The desire to simply know, what do I need to do to please God? The plethora of religions in the world today are all an attempt to answer that question. What do I need to do to please him? Let me figure out what box I need to check so I can move on with my life. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's it. The work of God is not for you to be a good person. It's not for you to be a better person and then come to him. It's not for you to get your life in order, straighten out everything about yourself and then come to Jesus. There's no work that you can do to earn what the son of man has to give to you. The work of God requires your faith. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's what Jesus said. 
Again, John 1, 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you want the life that the son of man has to give, you must believe in him, period. Believe in him, trust in him, put your confidence in him. He is the son of man. He is the one whom God, the father has set his seal. The father has made very clear that this one is his chosen vessel. This one is the one who he sent to give life to the world. In Jesus's day, God is calling all people everywhere not to be good enough, but to have faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. Even today, Jesus is the one who is good enough for us. And listen, not to believe in Jesus is to say, God, I don't believe your word. I don't believe that you are willing for me to be saved. I don't believe that you have sent Jesus for this purpose. Not to trust in Jesus is to say, I don't believe your way, God. I like my way better. I and many other sincerely moral people have a pretty good system. We have a pretty good way mapped out to you. You should just accept that, God, regardless of what you stated. I go to church most of the time. I give. I make things for the potluck, right? I help my neighbors mow their lawn. I protest against social injustice. I speak up for the unborn. I pay my taxes. I work hard. I raise my children to be good little boys and girls. I'm not a murderer or a thief like the really bad people in our society. That should be enough, right? Sincerity is not enough. Morality is not enough. You must believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, how did the people respond? Verse 30, they said to him again, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it says, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Their point is that they want a savior who fits into their categories, one who plays by their rules, one who satisfies their expectations. Right now, they want more food. Jesus, if you're really this guy, you know what you'll do? You'll pay up. You'll fill our bellies again. You'll make us feel good about ourselves. Again, that's the tune of so many in our day. Even so many who claim to be Christian, right? My God, my Jesus wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do that. Or he would do this or he would do that. We've talked before about how much people confuse the idea of love and what love is and how love winning has become this high virtue. And even people who claim to be Christians will say that the love of God doesn't do this. The love of God wouldn't do that. And they completely disregard the word of God in all of that. Now, the people are clearly not ready to believe in him. If they were, they would have believed when they saw the sign. But they're asking for another sign. At this point in the exchange, if I was Jesus, and I think we're all glad I'm not Jesus. I would have been like, are you kidding me? Like we just, we just went through this, right? I I just showed you all of these other things and um, you guys are still struggling. I don't get it. But Jesus is patient. He is gentle. He is kind. And he works to correct their thinking. It is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus is saying, you guys have missed the point. The bread that the people in the wilderness received under Moses was just a foretaste. It was a precursor. It was meant to point to a greater provision that he would send later. Physical food is not the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven is a person who gives eternal life. Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The one who is the bread of life is the greater provision of God. And I think this is the central truth of this passage. God is not just interested in meeting our basic needs alone. Yes, he is interested in meeting those. He wants to make sure that we have food, water, and clothing. But more than that, God God desires to meet our greatest need. And what is our greatest need if not eternal life? To know him. The people here who have approached Jesus have on their mind only their physical, temporary needs. And so often that's how we come to God. That's how we come to Jesus. That's how we approach his word, thinking of only the temporary, the momentary, the physical, the tangible. 
And we don't think about the spiritual realities that are there. And Jesus is saying there is a greater reality that you need to see. There's a greater provision that I have for you. It's not just salvation from Roman oppression, poverty or starvation. He wants to save you from spiritual death. That's only by the giving of eternal life. Well, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus responds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. People have said, said frequently about Jesus throughout his ministry. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I think this is pretty plain, right? I am the bread of life. I'm the one who was sent down from heaven. God sent me from heaven to give life to everyone. Again, all of what he said so far has been leading up to this point. In order to get this bread, they must believe in the one who he sent. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me will have the benefit of this bread. He said, they shall not hunger. They shall not thirst. Hunger and thirst are meant to point to the same reality, the reality of longing that we all have for life. We hunger and thirst for that which gives life. Jesus has already instructed them to hunger and thirst after that, which gives a qualitatively better life, eternal life. And here, in case there is any doubt, he makes clear that he is the one who gives it. Well, again, the bread of life is non-perishable. It's a person. Finally, it is the provision of God. And I have to summarize here. These final verses here, Jesus is trying to underscore the reality that he is the provision of God. There is no other provision for God's people to have eternal life. I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but I raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I raise him up on the last day. You've seen me and yet do not believe. Again, they saw him do the signs, but they still didn't believe. They instead followed him just to get more food. The father has given some to the son. All that the father gives me will come. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. We've talked about election before when we started in our study in Ephesians. God has chosen to give some to his son because the father loves the son. And so he's chosen to give some out of all of his creation to his son and those whom the father has given to the son, the son has committed to save. He says of all that the father has given, whoever comes, I will not cast out the one on whom God has set his seal. He's given this group of people to this group of people will go to Jesus. He will not cast them out. He says that they will come to him, meaning they will believe in him. Everyone who looks on the son, verse 40, and believes in him. And he gives them eternal life. Verse 37, I will never cast them out. Verse 38, I will do the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, I will lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, they should have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus is the provision of God for his people. The reality is that people stumble over Jesus all the time. They stumble over Jesus because they see this man and they wonder, how can this man be of any benefit to me? People come to church and they sit under the preaching of God's word Sunday after Sunday, and they wonder, how can this man be of any real benefit to me? This Jesus character, he's not paying my bills. He's not putting food on my table. He sounds like a nice guy, right? The songs are are wonderful and encouraging, but what is this Jesus guy really going to do for me? You see how they stumbled over him. Isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter's son, this Jesus character? How can he be the bread from heaven? How can he even say that about himself? People wonder is how can Jesus actually be of any benefit to me? point is that they're completely missing the point. Jesus says, this is how I am going to be a benefit to you. I'll give my life for you. He says in verse 54, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then 53, he said, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 55, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 57, as a living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. How can Jesus be of any benefit to anyone? He gives his life for us. He is the bread of life because he came to allow his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out unto death for you. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. The payment is eternal. The debt is eternal and you don't have enough life in you to pay for it on your own. But Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. And he says, whoever consumes me, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me. Will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. By sending Jesus into the world as the bread of life, God has definitively answered the question as to whether or not he cares Does God care about me, about my life? Does God care about your life? The answer is yes. He cares and he desires to meet our greatest need. He gives the life of the son of man, his only begotten son, the only one who has seen the father, the one who has come from the side of the father and made him known. He gives him as the bread of life. His life poured out unto death is the gift that the father has provided to meet our greatest need, the need for eternal life. As you think about the provision of God during this Advent season, whether his physical or material provision for you has been great or small, I would encourage you, do not forgive to give thanks to him for the provision of the bread of life. The provision of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself up for us, allowing his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, poured out unto death. He did all of this. So that he might prove to us that God cares and that as a good and gracious heavenly father who gives good and perfect gifts, he desires to meet all of our needs. May our lips and our hearts be filled with praise for the gift of the bread of life this season. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the gift of the bread of life, your son, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us, who allowed his body to be broken, who allowed his blood to be shed, all so that we would have our greatest need met, the need for eternal life. Father, help us to rejoice in him. Help us to sing of his praises. Help us to worship him now and always. In Christ's name, amen.